Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Thanks, Shanna. You know, I think it's probably because I, I'm, I'm just really thankful that so many of the young people at Grace Church understand this kind of stuff. I, I think it's probably because I grew up in a context where I didn't. <laughs> None of this made any sense to me. I, I probably heard it, I don't know how many times, but it never it never clicked. I, I didn't understand why would we read something from a guy named James. I mean, it's not even an exciting name. <clears throat> but here we are reading this, and I'm going to talk for like 40 minutes about him. Well, th- this is a Bible. <laughs> and, and in it, over the course of centuries, God inspired different men to write down his will, to reveal himself and his will for the world. And it's broken neatly into two parts. There's the Old Testament, which are the writings before Jesus came to earth, and the New Testament, which are the writings about when he came to earth and after. And this is one particular letter in the New Testament, the book of James, or the letter of James. And if you're just joining us, I've been preaching through this letter written by James, who was Jesus' brother, to a group of Christians who had been driven from their homes and their families because of their faith in Jesus. So life at that time is, was hard for most people, but James is writing to a group of people for whom life had been made much harder. They were steeped in trials. They had chosen to follow Jesus, and all the difficulties that they already had were made to be more difficult. James loved them and wanted to help them navigate this this hard season of life, this this hard these hardships of life. You know, you think, what kind of good news is it? We, we talk about the gospel, Christianity being about good news. Good news is, hey, trust in Jesus, and then life that's already hard gets harder. You know, you already have cancer, and you get cancer. You, you already, you already, you know, don't have a lot of money, and you're going to get poorer. And, you know, there's no promise you're going to get cancer if you follow Jesus. But the point is, in this life, it often gets harder to follow Jesus because Jesus calls us to go against so much of this life. And, and so that's what James's readers had done, and life was harder, and James loved them and wanted to help them to live life in a way that would honor God and be good for them and for the world around them. So to those ends, he'd already helped them to see that rather than counting their hardships as as misery or being filled with self-pity. I mean, what, what happens when life gets hard for you? Usually, you, and me, you, you sort of whine about it and complain and just do what we need to do to try to get out of it as quickly as we can. And James is writing them to say, hey, there's a, there's a different way to look at your hardships, and there's something different underneath them than you ever realized, perhaps. And so he wrote to them, and he wanted to help them. And he says, hey, rather than counting your hardships as a source of self-pity, you need to count them as all joy. And they're thinking, what are you talking about, James? <laughs> count my hardships as all joy. And he says, yes, because God is at work in every one of them. Every hardship you endure, God is at work in to do a greater good than whatever that hardship takes from you. 
But James also knew that, I'm just bringing you up to speed on where we are in the letter of James. He also knew that knowing how to do that, how to count your hardships is all joy, takes wisdom. I mean, what does that even mean? How do you do that? What does that, what does that look like to lose your job and, and count that as all joy? He knew that required a kind of wisdom that we don't have naturally. And, and so he told them where it could be found. It's found in God alone. And on top of that, God is eager, James said, to give it to everyone who seeks it from him. Life is hard. You want to know how to live it in a, in a manner that's pleasing to God? Ask God, and he'll give you the wisdom to know how to do that. And so for that reason, he again sought to help his readers. But guess what? The hardship that comes to us, the trials they were enduring, just like the trials that you and I endure, didn't just come from things outside of them. James knew that as well. He knew that his readers had trials that were coming from inside also. They, they were being persecuted and mocked for their lowliness. They had physical and financial hardships being caused by others, people teased them, made fun of them. James flipped that on its head by saying, it is the lowly who are exalted in the kingdom of God. On earth, it's the exalted who are exalted. But in God's kingdom, it's the lowly who are exalted. And so they knew of all of these trials that came from outside of them. But James knew as well that there were trials that came from inside of them. They were constantly, again, just like you and I are, tempted to sin, tempted to make choices that are not pleasing to God. We, we still have sinful desires in us that are always coming at us, trying to get us to go away from God. James knew that as well and wanted to give them help also in that. He did so by reminding them that their temptations to sin were never from God. He, he just told them that God uses the trials in your life to, to grow you and sanctify you and make you holy. And so they might have been wondering, well, what about these desires we have to sin? James says, those are not from God. In fact, God rewards with the crown of life all who resist them in faith. So that's where we've been so far in James, 15 verses. Uh, We start with the 16th verse today. As you can easily see, a lot of what James wrote in terms of how his readers were to respond to their trials is very counter common sense. <laughs> it's very counter the normal advice that you and I would get from the people around us. And so for those reasons and more, James felt compelled, and that's what our passage this morning is mainly about, to warn his readers to be constantly, vigilantly, consistently on the lookout for deception, for being deceived. James has just told them the truth that God has revealed to him about how to live in a manner pleasing to God, and he knows that all around them are other stories and other messages and other advice. And so it's easy to be deceived. It's easy to be tricked. It's easy to be brought to a place where you believe things that aren't true and act on those things rather than what is true. You with me, Grace? And in particular, James warned that they were vulnerable to being deceived. That, on one hand, their trials and their temptations were in vain, or, their, or, or that they were being tempted to sin by God. That, that's one problem. That's one way they might be deceived. 
And on the other end, which we'll see in 17, verses 17 and 18, are that good comes from someplace other than God or that God gives anything but good. Those are the specific ways that he was concerned they would be deceived. As he explains all this to them and gives them more help to honor God, we see in this a sweet picture, and this is what I hope you get from this, is a sweet picture of the love of God, a sweet display of James. He, he loved these people, and he's writing to them out of love for them. It's a sweet display of that love, and it is real help for all of us, for every Christian. Are you a Christian? Do you know hardship in life? Are there things that are hard in your life, either coming at you from the outside or welling up on the inside? This passage is another means of help to live in a manner pleasing to God and to walk on a path that leads to real joy, not fake joy. So let's pray that all of this would happen. <laughs> That's a lot. Let's pray that all that would happen to us by God, with God's help this morning. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is not a dead uh, bit of information for a group of people long since dead. Uh, rather, it is your word to all of your people for all times. These are the words of life. These are the words of help. We, we, we all go through life trying to make sense of it and, and trying to know how to respond to it and, and how to do it in a way that's going to lead to satisfaction and joy and, and it's pleasing to you, but you are kind to reveal that to us. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to go on a pilgrimage or... You've given it to us in your word. So please open that to us this morning. Help us to see this for what it is. And then, as James says, to not just be hearers, to, to not just hear these things, and, and, and even to not, not just to know that they're true, but to hear them and know that they're true and then live entirely in light of them. Help us to do that this morning for your, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. So just two verses. We're going to cover 18 next week, and I'll tell you why we're going to wait. But two verses, 16 and 17, two main points in each. And the first one is, do not be deceived, verse 16. The opening line, you can see it here in your Bibles, the opening line of our passage is a transition from what James has said negatively in verses 12 through 15, and what he's about to say positively in 17 and 18. So verse in verse 16, James commands his readers to refuse to allow deception on either side, 12 through 15, or 17 and 18, to overtake them. You see it. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. So again, I sort of said this in the introduction, but why did he feel the need to write this? Why issue this warning to this people here? I think there's two primary reasons in both are true always, but they were both amplified by the kinds of hardships his readers were enduring. He commanded his readers not to be deceived, one, because we're all easily deceived, and two, because being deceived is always dangerous. I want to try to explain both of those. Do you think you're easily deceived? Some of us know we are, and some of us think we're pretty sharp. But the bottom line is, God's word tells us we're all easily deceived. Satan is continually speaking lies, which we are often hard-pressed to recognize and refute. One of the neatest passages in the Bible on this is Matthew 4, 1 through 11, where wily Satan gives all of these tactics and uses all of them on Jesus, 
And Jesus gives us an example of how to respond. We're selfish. I don't know if you know that, but you are, and so am I. And prone to want to believe things that conform to what we want. You with me? (laughs) You and I want to believe in a world that exists to make us the center and our desires right. It's just part of living in the world we live, a fallen world. On top of that, there are mysteries in God, in his nature. He's He's infinite in his nature. That's hard. There's aspects of that for finite creatures like us that are tough to get our heads around. There are mysteries in God and in his plan. In fact, Jesus coming to earth to save us from our sins is called a mystery that was kept hidden for ages and generations. So why is it easy for us to be deceived? In part, because there's mystery in God's nature and in his plan for us. There's more reasons, too, the Bible tells us. Seeing clearly, not being deceived, recognizing truth and believing it are related to Christian maturity. And all of us have a long ways to go before we're fully mature. Top of all that, sin's very nature is deceptive. That's what it does. Sin is a lie by its nature. The current of life on earth runs continually and swiftly away from spiritual truth and toward spiritual lies. You don't discover spiritual truth passively. These are all reasons why we're so easily deceived. We have to seek truth out, and once we've found it, we have to guard it with vigor. If we don't, we will certainly remain in or fall back into temptation. So all these and more were at work. And James's readers. They're always at work, making truth difficult and deception easy. It was for these reasons that James so emphatically instructed his readers to be on guard. If you're not careful, you will be deceived. You already have deception in you, and more is to follow if you're not careful. So let us be prayerful. Let us be humble. Let us be diligent in our search for truth. Let us be careful to stay away from the things that might lead us into error. To those ends, I've got a few diagnostic questions for you. Where do you go to find truth? When you want to know what is true about about whatever, where do you go? Where do you go to get advice when you need it, to live the kind of life that you need to live? How do you even know what kind of life you need to live to get advice for? Where do you go? Number two, how many of the things that you believe about God, about yourself, about the world around you, Can you root, like if someone were to say to you, why do you believe this about God? Or why do you believe this about who you are or what you're for? How many of those things could you root carefully and clearly in the word of God? What happens to you when you find out through whatever means that God's word contradicts your beliefs? What happens? Do you you seek to conform or ignore, conform God's word to your beliefs or ignore it? In favor of your beliefs, what happens? Number four, what do you do when someone questions your understanding of things? Do you pray for your pastors and teachers to proclaim, to know and proclaim the truth only? And here's the last question. In what ways are you actively seeking to root out whatever deception is in you? Your kids, your church. Grace, we're easily deceived. Consequently, we need to be vigilant. We need to be on the lookout, on guard against deception and constantly in pursuit knowing and walking in the truth of God. This is as true today as it was when James wrote this letter. So here's the other part of that. It's dangerous. We're easily deceived, which is bad in and of itself, but it's made worse when I tell you that 
It's dangerous to be deceived. Again, as a transition verse, it's dangerous looking back to believe that God brings evil things to us. That's not helpful. That's dangerous to believe that. And it's dangerous to believe that good comes from anything but God or anything but good comes from God. To be deceived into believing that God tempts his people into sin leads to all kinds of trouble. It calls into question God's goodness. It produces doubt about our salvation. It makes our responsibility for sin confusing. If, if God's making me do this, then how am I responsible for it? It fills us with a special kind of resentment when we do sin. If we fall into the lie of believing that God brings sin to us and tempts us with it, it makes it really difficult to trust in God. Likewise, James warned, and we're going to come back to this in a minute, but that believing that good comes from anywhere but God or anything but good comes from God has its own problems, its own dangers. So, Grace, we need to settle firmly on the fact that in the end, that in the end, when it's all said and done, joy and life come only from truth, while only death and misery come from lies. In the short term, listen to this, because you've all experienced this. We all have. In the short term, you might be glad for your doctor to lie to you about your cancer diagnosis. Think about that for a minute. Everything looks great, Mr. Smith. You have nothing to worry about. That's what we want to hear when we go to the doctor wondering if we have cancer. That's what we all hope for as the tests come back. On the other hand, no one wants to hear I'm sorry to tell you you have cancer, and apart from aggressive treatment, you maybe have a few months to live. No one wants to hear that. So why not pay your doctor a little more to just lie to you? <laughs> why, not, why not just slip him a 20 to say, hey, here's the thing, just tell me, tell me what I want to hear. A lie would cause us to leave, of course, if you don't know it's a lie, would cause you to leave your appointment relieved, light, grateful, thankful, glad. While the truth, on the other hand, will fill you with sadness and dread. Here's a different, same principle, different angle. Yes, of course you can lead that ministry at our church. Sure feels more affirming and loving than, unfortunately, I, I don't think you're ready for that. And in fact, given the gifts God has given you, I'm not sure you ever will be. That stings a little, doesn't it? Everyone wants to hear the first report, and almost no one wants to hear the second. So why not just tell a little lie and, and let somebody, you know, go for it? Maybe the clearest way to help you see the dangerousness of deceit is in the way of evangelism. It's almost always really awkward. Do you, do you have anyone in your life who is not a Christian and who knows they're not a Christian, who doesn't claim to be a Christian, but you want them to be. You want them to know life. You want them to know forgiveness. You want them to know Christ. Is there anything more awkward and uncomfortable for you and that person than saying, hey, here, here's the thing. You've sinned against God. You are God's enemy. You don't necessarily know that, but your sin against God is rebellion in the highest form. It's treason, and the wages of that is everlasting conscious torment. That's what hell is. That's awkward. That's not, you know, the way you, you, you start up a lighthearted conversation here. That's awkward. That's uncomfortable. That, that, that's... So what's the deal? James's principle under consideration is that being deceived is always dangerous. Even though it would feel temporarily better to be lied about by, about your cancer, or to lie to about your cancer, doing so will kill you. 
is that it will prevent you from getting the treatment you need. Likewise, being allowed to lead a ministry that you're not qualified for will probably feel pretty good in the short term, but it will almost immediately turn to be harmful to your soul, the health of the church, in the name of Jesus. And to lie to someone about the true nature of their standing before God gives temporary relief. I mean, hey, God loves you just as you are, feels a whole lot better. But in the end, it leads to everlasting misery. Grace, here's... I don't say a lot of clever things, but I think this is sort of helpful. Every lie you believe robs you of joy, and some rob you of being reconciled to God. Let me say that two different ways. Deception can feel good for a time, but it is always dangerous. Truth can hurt for a time, but it is always the only path to joy in life. So to help help you not merely hear this principle, but apply it, let me ask you a few more questions. Is there anyone in your life that has the green light to say anything to you that they feel needs to be said and is spiritually mature enough that what they say is probably true? Do you have anyone in your life that you've given just a blank check to? If you smell even the smallest hint of sin in me, of deceit, of of me believing a lie, please come and tell me about that. It'll probably sting at first, but I welcome that. Please come and do that. Is there anyone in your life that has that kind of freedom that you've sought out? Is it more likely that if someone were to come to you in that way, hey, I think you're off on this. I, I think you might be mistaken. Are they more likely to feel welcomed or wounded on the other side? More importantly still, are you consistently reading the the one source of truth that God has given us to know him and his will? Are you consistently reading the Bible and asking God prayerfully in it to reveal and repair deception in your life, in your church, and your friends? These are the kinds of measures we need to take if we're going to truly heed James's warning. So we're all easily deceived, and being deceived is dangerous. Well, along with those inescapable truths, let's not miss the simple fact that James wrapped all of this in love. Why, why did James instruct his readers to look out for their deadly deceptions? Was it because he was a picky and critical dude? You know, some, some people just like to pick on others. They, they just like to find things wrong in, in other people. Is that, is that what was going on here? Was James just picky and critical? Did he just like to highlight other people's problems? No, the text tells us. It was because they were his beloved brothers and sisters. He cared deeply for them. He did not want them to walk in misery or fragility or ignorance or instability or double-mindedness or pride or failure or deception or death. Instead, he wanted them to walk in joy and completeness and wisdom and stability and exaltation and steadfastness and hope and holiness and on the way to being crowned with the crown of life. And all of that because he loved them. He longed for what was best for them and was willing to take upon himself even some pushback and difficulty to bring this to them. So may it be so for us as well. May we be a people who speak the truth, who long to drive out deception wherever it is found, and may we do so because we're filled with love. Love for God, love for the people around us, this church, and even the whole world. We're easily deceived. That deceit might feel good in the short term, but it is always dangerous and often deadly. The truth, when we share it, might offend, but lasting life and joy are only found in it. We ought to know these things and in love share them with everyone we meet. 
James says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And that leads to the second final verse for this morning. James wanted his readers to avoid being deceived about God as tempter, which he was not, and also positively that goodness was found somewhere other than God or something other than goodness is given to us by God. And so he says in verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. In this declaration, James offered a coin, and the coin had two sides, and I want to tell you about both. On the first side, he meant to help them understand and therein avoid the deception, avoid deception that every good and perfect gift comes only from God. If there is any good anywhere to be found, it has come from God. He is the source of it. It is from him. Jesus taught that no one is good but God alone. In other words, all the goodness in the world comes ultimately from God. In this sense, we're going to see in a second that he's the father of lights. In this sense, he is the father of goodness. Genuine goodness is never to be found outside of God. Goodness, therefore, is God's alone to create and disperse. Truly, every good and perfect gift is from above. That's the first side of the coin. Flip it over, look at the other side. The second side of the coin is that only good and perfect gifts come from above. Good only comes from God, and nothing but good comes from God to his people. Grace, this means what you think it means. Whatever God gives his people, even if it doesn't seem like it or feel like it at first, is good. Don't be deceived. God will never give evil things like temptation to sin to his people. Therefore, it is silly and dangerous to reject that which God gives, whatever it is. And it is wise and safe to receive with joy all that he does offer, even trials and hardships. Together, these, this coin, both sides, keep us from pride. They remind us that anything good in us, if, if, you're, if you're good at reading or writing or math or sports or whatever, if there's anything good in you, truly good, it is from God. That keeps us humble. That, that keeps pride from us. It keeps us from coveting, from wanting things we're not meant to want. If it is God who determines the specific measure of good gifts that each of us receive, we need to be grateful in every way for the measure that he gives us. And it keeps us from grumbling. There's no room to complain with our lot in life when we recognize the fact that God never withholds a good gift from his people. So one coin for all Christians, two sides. Every good gift comes from God and everything that comes from God is good. Don't miss this and fall into deception. It's one final principle from this passage I want to highlight. And I, I think I can illustrate it the best, or at least introduce it the best, by a story. I remember this week. I was meeting with someone this week, and the story came to mind. Uh, I was reminded of an exchange that took place in a... In a you know, there's certain, <laughs> there's certain stories that sort of resonate with everyone. I don't know how many have sat in a political philosophy course, but this doesn't seem like one that maybe would resonate with everyone. But I think if you hang on for a second, it will. So I was sitting in a political philosophy course in the middle in the mid-90s. And at one point in this semester, the professor made an argument. You don't really need to care what the argument is, but I'll, I'll tell it to you anyway. At one point in the, in the semester, the professor may, mentioned that a social contract, which is a, a technical term in political philosophy, but a social contract 
was the only reasonable way to establish moral norms. Social contract, only reasonable way to establish moral norms. Under a social contract, which is an agreement made by people in a particular society, murder would be wrong because no one wants their life taken from them unjustly, and so everyone collectively agrees to outlaw murder. That's so Murder is morally wrong because through a social contract, we agree that it is wrong. He argued that's the only way to make real morality. When morality is determined by social contract, it is, true, truly, uh, it is able to truly reflect the will and consent of the people. So I had just become a Christian at this point, and I didn't know much, but something about that didn't sit quite right with me. I, I knew intuitively, although I didn't know why, that real morality must be rooted deeper than that. It, it must come from something more transcendent than that. And so I went to the professor and asked him, fumbling around. I didn't even really know how to ask what I was asking. But what I did ask is why it wouldn't be better to root morality in the, the authority of God, the commands of God. So in that sense, murder would be wrong because God declared murder to be wrong. Well, here was the professor's answer, which because of the way I asked the question, was wrong, but righter than I knew at the time. Here's what he said. He suggested that this wouldn't work because if that were the case, nothing could keep God from simply changing his mind, willy-nilly. At least if people did that through social contract, it would represent the majority opinion. How trepidatious it would be, he wondered, to live in a world where God could declare, apart from any human consent, and he wouldn't even necessarily need to tell us, that murder was wrong and he would hold us accountable to that one minute, and then right the next minute, and then wrong a little while later, and keep going back and forth. So I didn't know how to answer him, the professor, then, but I do now. And, and I know because James tells us in this passage. The problem with his reasoning, and even with my question, or the way I framed the question, was twofold. First, Morality is tied to God's nature before it is ever tied to his words. Okay? God is just, and God is life. That's who he is. Therefore, he declares murder, the unjust taking of life, to be objectively and universally wrong. His words come from his nature. And second, which I didn't understand then, but James tells us here, one aspect of God's character is being unchangeable. Murder will always be wrong because God will, has always been, always is, and always will be life and just. Okay, i tell you that story again because I think it really helpfully illustrates the second half of verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Okay, we covered that. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We're asking you to build your life on the fact that God is good always and only and only gives good and good only comes from God, that you have helped to endure hardships because you know those things in Christ, that's a lot to ask. <laughs> what is that rooted in? Why should we fight against deceit? And why should we especially fight against it to believe in the universal goodness of God toward those who are in Christ? And how can we find real help and hope in times of difficulty by believing that? The key, James says, is that God does good and gives good because he is good. We can trust that God has always been and always will be good. He does not change. We can trust in that. That is, James rooted the two sides of his coin and the help that they bring in the nature of God. 
God's people ought to trust God that he does not tempt his people to sin and that every good and perfect gift comes from God because God is the Father of lights and he is without variation or shadow due to change. Real quickly, what does that mean? That he is the Father of lights is meant to help us first think of the stars, the sun, and the sky, these physical lights. God is the Father of them and that they came from him. He created them. For that reason, all physical light is from God. He is the father of lights in that sense, but that is meant to point us to a deeper sense. Those lights exist in large measure to help us understand God is the source of a more profound and significant kind of light. The Apostle John wrote about this in his first letter. He said, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. He's talking about a moral light, it's, it's a more significant kind of light. It's holiness and righteousness. God is the father of all that is pure. Indeed, all, more than just that, he is only that. He's not only the father of that, he is only that. There is not even a speck, a hint of darkness in him. Well, because that's who God is, you've got to draw to mind a trial you're facing, a difficulty, a real-life difficulty. This isn't theory. This isn't just some... Vague concept. You got to draw to mind some difficulty you're experiencing. And if your hope is in Christ, you know that whatever difficulty is coming your way, so far as it's from God, is good. And it is good because God is good. And He only gives good. He is the Father of good, the Father of light, the Father of holiness. Because that's who God is, because He is perfectly good in every way, because He is the Father of light. His people never need to wonder if God is bringing evil or failing to bring good. He will always give good and perfect gifts from above because that's all that is in him. And again, we need not worry that that'll ever change. Maybe that's good news for this week or this century or this millennia. Millennium? Millennium? But how do we know that'll always be the case? James tells us that too. Because in a part of his essential nature is that there is no variation or shadow due to change. God made the lights in the heavens to revolve and move, but his character and nature is not like that. Therefore, his disposition towards those who love him will never change. He always only blesses us because he is always only good. Our sinful desires come and go and are usually unpredictable, but God is not like that. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So only God gives good gifts and God's God gives only good gifts because God is eternally and unchangeably good. We must not be deceived about these things, but rather build our lives upon them. So here's my conclusion. Verse 18, which we'll get to next week. Let's look at this. James brings his argument even a little bit further. There he describes the greatest gift of God. I just said that God gives good only comes from God and God only gives good. James describes in 18 the greatest possible good that there is. And his basic reasoning is, if God does not withhold from you the greatest, most costly good that there is, he'll never withhold any lesser good from you either. We'll get to that next week. And so as we transition into communion then, let us remember that all of this is only because of Jesus. God is always, only, and eternally good. But we only have access to that in light of our sin and rebellion because Jesus took all of our sin and rebellion upon himself on the cross. God's love is upon us and he directs his goodness to us not because we deserve it, 
Not because you've prayed enough or because you've come to church enough or because you've said no to sin enough, but because Jesus is worthy. He is perfect. And by grace through faith, we are united with him. It is through Jesus alone that our eyes are opened to deceit and truth, that our deceit is revealed and our sins are cleansed. So let's let's remember all of this and give thanks to God as we turn now to communion.